Welcome to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive. I'm Andy. And I am Zach. And up next, the recovery series concludes with a look at laser, dry needling, ultrasound, and more. And after that, World of Running updates about New York City half, Barkley marathons, and more. Welcome back. We're glad you're with us so that you can hear our voice in your ear again. Because that's that's what that's what we're doing. No, we do it's this. not why they. Listen. I didn't say why. Not I said that's voices. what we're doing. That's, yes, but we're going to bring you some great content this week that is going to be continuing on our recovery series. We're also going to bring you great answers to your wonderful questions at the end of the month every month. And if you have not submitted a question this month, you need to. Even if you've submitted one on other months and so share questions about your training about your upcoming experiences your past or present circumstances and we'll answer them on air end of the month all you need to do to ask a question is go to a to z running.com slash question mm -hmm. submit the form and we'll share responses on air we also love to share stories and i recently was running in nashville and i almost ran into some deer they were unafraid and like I was able literally to literally almost just ran into them. If I wouldn't have put on my brakes, just I could have just plowed them, them over. Just yeah, there's a bunch slap of them. them on the hindquarters, and they'll <laughs> they'll get out of there. No, well, they they did end up moving, but you. it was it was pretty close, and there was many of them, and it mm. happened a couple times. Okay, I had posted about this in stories on Instagram, and Jim reached out in a reply and told me an even better story, which was yeah. an actual collision between deer and man <laughs> and that was it just a yeah. collision well so i guess what happened is that the deer jumped the over uh, a fence and actually ran into jim while he was running and knocked him down what kind of craziness is going on in an animal's head when it's like there's another animal and the one and only place i don't want to be is in direct contact with it and yet somehow. Yeah, somehow it happens. Yeah. All right. Well, Unlikely, I, I but two, cool. I like that story. I have two deer stories. Okay. Two crazy ones that have happened. The first one was, I don't even, I don't know, years ago. I was running on a bike path, and it was one of those areas where you're like between a fence and a river. Like there's just nothing else. There's a little bit of shrub foliage, but it's basically a fence and a river and the bike path in between. And I'm running along early in the morning, and lo and behold, a buck is standing there, and it's looking right at me, and it starts stomping like you better get out of my oh, way. No. And I'm like, no, you better get out of my way. So I kept <laughs> going. And he turns around and he hightails it. And I'm like, see, that's what I'm talking about. Well, about five seconds later, he turns back around and decides he'd rather come at me instead of oh, run away. No. Comes straight at me. He's waving his head. He's doing all this crazy stuff. And at the last second, he veers off and jumps in the river. And that is how I won the standoff with a buck. That actually makes me nervous because it made me nervous too. They do. It's rare, but they do fight. I don't know what was going on there, except <laughs> that I managed that one. And that was that was good. Okay, my second though, my second was more recently. This was just like a few weeks ago, and I'm running on the street, like in the middle of the neighborhood. Right? We're not talking about some remote area, and I'm running up this steep hill. And any of you who know whereabouts we live, there's this road with this like quarter mile long hill that's quite steep i'm running up that hill and uh as i'm doing that there's a car right next to me <laughs> it's actually literally driving right next to me um and they get up to the top of the hill before me because they're, they're in a car. car 
and uh, but only barely because they had passed me right near the top. So as they get to the top, their brakes go on and they stop. And I get to the top of the hill and I realize the reason they stopped is because there are seven deer standing in the middle of the road and they're not moving. They're just standing there. And so I'm getting close and I'm thinking, wow, those deer are just not going to move. So I run at them. Like I'm thinking they'll move for me. <laughs> Maybe not this giant steel trap car, but they'll move for me, right? So I run at them. Well, apparently these deer were loath to leave the road. They had some aversion to getting off the road. Huh. So when I ran at them, they started running too. But they didn't run off the road. They just ran along the road with me. So for about 15 seconds, I'm counting it, 15 seconds, I'm in the middle of a pack of seven deer and we're just running together. That's cool. I'm not kidding right now and I'm not exaggerating. 15 seconds, I just ran with a pack of deer. Are they called packs? Herd? Mm, I think it's I a herd. I didn't know that deer were called herds. That That's up? why I was going with pack. But they're <laughs> seriously not dogs. So it's well. Anyway, um, so I'm running with this group of deer in the middle of the road, and there's cars all around just stopped watching. And I kept thinking to myself, I wonder what they're thinking about what's happening, especially the ones who didn't see how it began. And then after about 15 seconds, finally one of the deer got brave and they left the road, <laughs> stepped off into the woods on the side of someone's house. Someone's property there. Not even really woods, like three trees. So most of the people would call it a herd, but you could yeah. also call the group a bunch, a mob, a parcel, or a wrangle. Okay, well, among those words, this one was <laughs> definitely a mob. A mob. And they were on the deer. prowl. All right, so there you go. Those are your deer stories for the day. You <laughs> so didn't fun. think you were going to get Jim. some of that. Thanks, Jim. That's just an exciting And anyone else. I'm now, glad you're okay with yes, after that collision. Because yours was more serious than the rest of I did of follow us. up and asked if he was okay. All right. Yeah. But did you get the deer? Or did you have a tag and was it in season? Are you allowed to take down the, a deer? The deer shook it off too, but I guess he, the deer was stunned. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, why yeah. not? Um, all right, so now everyone else who's got crazy deer stories, throw them into the social medias <laughs> and tag us because we are super interested in all of your wild deer stories about things that have happened while running. Okay, But not your tame deer stories. No, just the wild ones because <laughs> that's what we're all about. All right, well, speaking of wild things... This Wednesday, so if you're listening before Wild March Wednesday. 22, if you're listening before March 22, then you haven't missed it yet. And if you're listening after March 22, then you already were there because, of course, you were going to be there. On or March, you could listen after the fact. Yes, that's true as well. On March 22, we are going live on Facebook with Rivertown Races. I think this is the last time we're doing this before uh, the Rivertown Races event. So we're going live with race director Andrew Buicamo. We're going to talk about training in the last month or so of a season. And if you know anything about what we say on the podcast about training, the last six weeks of your training season are the most interesting. That's when things are very, very different. And can be different depending on what you need to do and what you are training for. So that being the case, you definitely want to catch this one because we're going to be answering your questions live on air as well. So you go to Facebook, you find Rivertown Races, or uh, I think if you find A to Z Running, either one will be there. But uh, look for the event, find the live event, and, um, and tune in at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight mm -hmm. Time so that you can catch all the action. Mm-hmm. 
and insights. And again, that's on Facebook, and it's relevant to anyone that is entering the final stages of race preparation. Mm -hmm. So you'll want to tune in for that, even if you're not able to make it to Rivertown. But if you are, we'll get to see you there in person. The race is April 22nd. There's a 5K, a 10K, and a half marathon. Zach's going to be running. I will be cheer squad. And if you register, you can get 10% off with the code ATOZ10. Again, that's A to Z10. Register at rivertownraces.com. All right. Well, these are exciting things. We've got a great topic for you and some fascinating world of running updates after that. So sit tight and get ready or run run smooth or whatever you're doing right now. (laughs) Get ready for the the main main topic. Well, we have been talking about recovery for the last several episodes with a, with a few things in between, like uh, the Q&A episodes. But we've been talking about recovery uh, largely because it sounds like most of us have a kind of limited exposure to the recovery methods available to us and a limited understanding of what things are the most valuable in what instances. So if you've missed any of these episodes, we're going to encourage you to go back and listen to any of them that say recovery series on them. Uh, we talked about icing and heating. We talked about rest and what that's doing for you. But we also talked about things like um, myofascial release and some of the more technical aspects of therapies you can, in fact, still do for yourself, on yourself. Um, but now today, we're going to take the conversation to that level of these are things you're probably not going to be able to do to yourself on your own. You're probably going to need some medical professionals and equipment that uh, you likely don't have and likely need to go to a place to use. Um, And so that being the case, part of the reason why we wanted to wrap up the recovery series with this particular element is because these are the more intensive interventions. Mm -hmm. These tend to be the things that it's like, when when I've got a problem and I really need something to make a difference here, what are my options? Mm-hmm. What what kind of stuff is available to me? Um, we're not going to cover probably every single thing under the sun. For example, we're not going to talk about some steroid shots or what those do for you. Um, I don't consider that personally to be a recovery method. I think that falls under a totally different category. Um, but we're going to try to address here in the closing reflection um, what are the most likely options that you have available to you at a local physical therapist or other medical specialist who might have some of this equipment. Mm -hmm. We're going to kick things off with laser. Oh, this is good. This is a good one. (laughs) It's lasers. I mean, like literally like they're zapping you with lasers. Yeah. Yeah. So what is laser therapy? Like Zach said, it's using specific wavelengths of light to treat soft tissues. It sounds way less cool when you just say, eh, we're just waving light at you. We're shooting you with lasers. <laughs> yeah, and there are physical therapy offices that have a version of this, but there's a more intensive one that John Maskell, Dr. John Maskell, talked about on the show, and we have, I think, some some uh, more that we want to share from him on that, right? We do, in fact. Yep. Great. Um, but... What they have and what he's talking about is a more advanced laser treatment system. And it's actually been approved by the FDA, and this is like super recent. They require a lot in order to approve. So it is MLS M8 robotic laser therapy. Robots (laughs) shooting you with lasers. Uh huh. And it's cleared for relief of pain, inflammation, and edema. 
Yeah. So now here's, here's, this is one you're not likely to find very easily in a local physical therapy office near you. Um, so do a little bit of research. Where are their orthopedic lasers or where are their laser mm -hmm. treatments? Um, an ortho laser just opened in Michigan. It's the first one in Michigan, and it's in Grand Rapids area. But I guess it's on every street corner pretty much in Europe. There's a lot of other countries that are utilizing this a lot more readily. And I think the holdup has been the FDA, perhaps. Always maybe. is. But there's a lot. There's so many recovery methods that aren't FDA approved. So I don't know. Uh, but it also, of course, is an investment for someone up front to bring laser to to a state or to an area so we're lucky to have just gotten it in michigan and that's ortho laser and i'll link to it in our show uh blog post yeah and so let's talk a little bit about um what's going on here with laser specifically because insofar as this is a really great idea for a treatment there's two reasons one because there's like no downside like negative side effect type of stuff right pretty much zero i mean i guess in theory there's like you know for the next eight hours don't like ice things and stuff and so like technically that's a side effect i guess you could say but um it's super safe and it's highly effective uh and so what what happens with the laser treatment is you're talking like it takes about five to seven minutes so it's a very small amount of time you go into their office and it might take 15 minutes total for your entire time in their office um and so five to seven minutes and they're zapping you with a laser and a specific it's an acute location so we're talking about an area where you've got some swelling where you've got um an injury that's in an acute stage and you're looking for recovery tendonitis um, yep and especially it's so it's soft tissue injuries um especially tendon related stuff because that's so hard to heal as well um muscles tendons and, and things mm -hmm. are all effective here and then what it's doing is just this is the most fascinating part is that the laser is itself addressing at a cellular level an effect it's trying to essentially um encourage your cells to enter a recovery phase more quickly yeah basically yeah i'm dumbing down the description <laughs> and you know it helps with healing and, and improvement over time so there's usually a, a recommended amount of sessions that you would do that would help you along your path to healing and what does the re research say well about the robot robotic laser i should say this other method we haven't seen a lot of research about that but for low level laser there is already great research that reveals significant improvement in pain range of motion and motor function and this is from the laser that's not as strong or effective so that's exciting for those yeah. of us who do have access to the more powerful lasers a systematic review of low la laser yielded consistent effective results and improvement of symptoms and there's studies also that specifically find significant improvement for Achilles tendonitis injuries, which we've mm -hmm. talked about recently. So, and a lot of runners experience that. So it's something that you might want to look into if you have Achilles issues. So the, the first thing that I would say is if you have access to a laser therapy location and do, do some searching to see if there's one near you, um, if you're in Michigan uh, and you're near Grand Rapids, that's the one <laughs> currently at the moment of the recording here. Um, and so this is a situation where as soon as someone says, you've got tendonitis, you've got tendinopathy, or you've got a tendon strain or something, which is essentially what tendonitis is. Um, so if they, as soon as someone says, that's what this looks like, or that's what this might be, that's when you call the laser place that day and you get booked right away because we're talking about substantial reduction in recovery time. Yeah. The sooner you start it, the better.
Yeah, and I'm just a study of one from my own experience, and I was able to get in right away because I already had scheduled the appointment when I had an adductor strain, Mm -hmm. and I was able to be back running in like two days, which that normally takes a week or more to come back from. Hard to say that the laser was entirely to credit for that because it usually takes two or three treatments before it's really making a substantial effect. But yeah, I know, but I'm I, like I'm saying, can. I'm a study yeah. of one, yeah. and when I had mentioned that to John, he's like, the sooner you get in, That's the it. better. Yep. So it's possible because it was literally right after it happened. It's like two days after the strain. No, no, I mean the day of the strain. <laughs> hours after I strained it. it. I didn't realize it was the <laughs> it was, same day. Even better, it was the same day. Yeah, well, if you've yeah. got a chance for that, if you live next door to a laser place and can just walk, I in was there. already <laughs> scheduled. Yeah. So this this is this is kind of the point then. Uh, when we talk about like we're looking for treatments that are highly effective, um, there's two reasons that two elements of highly effective. One is that the downsides are minimal, if if any, um, and so it, you can do it without any concerns or risks. And then the other side is how much of a benefit does it potentially have? Because most of these kinds of treatments, they don't necessarily have proof of a substantial benefit um some is always good but Mm -hmm. in this instance it's a substantial benefit or at least more substantial than others and uh no downsides Mm -hmm. uh, no downsides that are that are concerning next up is dry needling Mm. this is a lot more common have you you've had it done right i hope not no Okay, I've had Someone's it in once. Stabbing me with so they're shooting you with lasers. Now they're stabbing <laughs> you with little swords. Oh my goodness! Well, the thing with the laser, it is painless. Just want to make sure that that's clear because that's yeah. being dramatic here. The the laser is painless, but the needles are not. It's not bad. It's not bad. Mayo Clinic explains dry needling this way: during a dry needling treatment, one or more thin monofilament needles are inserted into a muscle trigger point one or more it's like 10 a trigger point is a local band of tight irritable and dysfunctional muscle tissue this often emerges because of injury overuse or poor movement patterns so where i experienced dry needling was at my pt office usually yep that's pretty common i had poor movement patterns (laughs) i believe that's why where did you get needled uh, I think it was my hamstring. Okay. It was my hamstring. So like 20 of them probably then. I don't everywhere. know how many. I couldn't doink. see it. <laughs> you could feel it though. You're getting stabbed. <laughs> All right. So uh, enough of Zach's over dramatics about dry needling. I'll bring them back on the next one. Uh, but dry needling and what it's doing then is the key because it is um, it is a release technique. It's helpful in releasing high tension points, which is why the trigger points are there. But it specifically is a nerve-related therapy um, or at least that's that's one of the more substantial contributions that it gives so where you have the kind of the bundling of tissues and especially where nerves are being inhibited in some sense in some of those clusters dry needling can be especially effective in mm-hmm. releasing some of that, I like that. Um, it also increases blood f- flow and it's really known for reducing pain and the research there's not a ton of it Mayo Clinic says that most patients report immediate relief from the treatment that wasn't quantified. A systematic review and meta-analysis of dry needling concludes that evidence 
point to decreasing pain, but functionally it works best when paired with physical therapy. There wasn't a lot that they were able to measure in terms of improvement without the the needling Mm -hmm. by itself without being paired with physical therapy. And there's a meta-analysis, though, that suggests that it significantly helps with pain for both short-term and long-term. But that's that's one of those things that's difficult. Because like, what is the actual improvement? Stab someone, they can't feel the one pain anymore because they're just hurting from the stabbing. But Zach, that's true, isn't that what that's, you're being? Okay. Does your leg hurt? Here, let me squeeze your hand really hard. Now, does your leg hurt? No, only my hand. Um, so here's the thing with dry needling, though, is with the therapy thing. Remember that the point of dry needling is a kind of release, right? So the same thing when we talked about myofascial releases, uh, the same rule applies here, where if you release something that's great but if you don't do anything to then rehabilitate the area your chances are that release is going to be temporary yeah and another good point that zach had made earlier when i discussed this with him is that when you have decreased pain as the studies do are able to uh prove i guess so to speak there's evidence of that then you are able to do more of your pt which then can help you towards your improvement in the process so there is an advantage to having that pain reduction not only for the daily life but also for the rehabilitation so that was what the systematic review said it that it should be paired with physical therapy Mm -hmm. when you are using this technique So dry needling then as an application tends to be recommended when you've got some serious tightness, um, mobility problems, especially insofar as there's like trigger point areas or like acute knots in the tissues. All right. So next up is ultrasound. All right. So we were zapping you with lasers. We're stabbing you with needles. Now this one's actually not quite as as like super ultrasonic, (laughs) ultrasonic waves of. Yeah, therapeutic ultrasound machines use vibration and thermal effects to reduce skeletal muscle injury, lessen skeletal muscle soreness, and improve blood flow and promote muscle relaxation. Hmm. Yep, and according to Harvard Health, it can be relieved. The pain that can that is in your joints or your muscles can be relieved through ultrasound, and it's a pretty straightforward process. It uses sound waves to promote blood flow, calm muscular spasms, and speed of healing. And a therapist will, if you don't know how it works and you haven't had a child inside you that they're ultrasounding, (laughs) but they use a gel in the area that hurts, sometimes with medication. So that's another element of it. And it's um, then they're able to treat the soft tissue for inflammation and it helps with treating wounds, repairing tissue, and facilitating muscular stretching. So the main reason why all of that is happening is because the sound waves, aka the vibrations that are going through your tissues, help to just kind of like uh, think about, think about it in terms of um, things are not like in exactly the right place or moving in exactly the right way. The vibrations come through and just kind of shakes it all up a little bit. And it's kind of like settles. So, like, know, if so. you had a something that's wrinkled, like a shirt. Yes, that there you like go. Shake Thank it you. Out. Your example is way easier to understand than mine. I like that. Shake out your shirt, shake and then the and shirt. then you hold it straight, right? So, once again, with ultrasound, as with as with many other things, um, it tends to be helpful to not just do the ultrasound treatment and then go about your life, but um, do a little bit more along with it. And I will mention this: um, one of the things that is uh, notable about ultrasound is it's also a really effective way to expose fractures 
or mm. near fractures in the bones. Because remember, we're talking about vibrations here. If you take an ultrasound tool and put it up against a stress fracture, especially if it's close to the surface, those vibrations will be excruciating. Because hmm. now you're talking about you're shaking the fracture. <laughs> Not a fun thing, right? Um, uh, so that's that's actually... Uh, there are a lot clean. of different methods and applications for ultrasound that I discovered as I was studying for this. And if you're interested in learning more, I can link to it. The National Library of Medicine published an overview. So uh, you can find that there. We can't go through them all. Um, but what we usually are looking for when it comes to ultrasound for runners is repairing of tissue, reducing healing times, and helping with greater mobility. And there's research. Again, there's di different methods, and I don't know exactly which one was used for which, but there was a study on bone injury. Mm. And during fresh fracture repair, ultrasound reduced healing times by 30 to 38%, which is significant. Oh. And when applied to non-united fractures, ones that aren't touching, like there's a gap there, it stimulated union in 86% of cases. So I would love to read more on this yeah. and find people doing more work on this because that's fascinating. And that's, those are substantial results. Yes. So if that's, if that's consistently true, I mean, we're talking about like everyone should be doing that every time. But I've never fracture. heard of that until However, I studied this. <laughs> I also want to ask the question, how did that feel for those patients? Right, remember hurts. what I just said? Fractures, when vibrated by ultrasound, hurt immensely. I know this from personal experience. I've had a stress fracture that uh, my PT said, that Adam said, let's check, let's just double check this because we didn't have an x-ray that showed it, but we were, we were all, the doctor, the PT, we were all very confident this was a stress fracture. He takes that ultrasound wand to it and he's like, all right, I'm just going to slowly turn this up. Tell me when it starts to hurt. And he's turning it up, he's turning it up, and suddenly I start to feel like what amounted to a kind of burning sensation, which is really weird at the moment. And then he turns it up more and it goes from burning to like my legs on fire. Uh -huh. And that was just a little, a few <laughs> seconds. Imagine trying to be treated this. I don't know. I don't know. I, I want to know. know. I want to know now. I'm very curious. But and that's that's insightful. So bone related injuries yeah. could have some substantial results. But okay. beyond that, mm -hmm. there is like nothing. Very, so, very little. An, Oxer an Oxford review of therapeutic ultrasound and its effectiveness they say this, I'll just quote them. There is still little evidence of clinical effectiveness of therapeutic ultrasound as currently used by physical therapists to treat people with pain and musculoskeletal injuries and to promote soft tissue healing. Mm -hmm. There's just not enough research. And what I had looked into as some of the caveats to their study was that there is a discrepancy in how it's being used and, and intensities. the intensities. Yep. So there's not a lot of consistency and again, I think that it's better used in conjunction with other therapies. So like at the physical therapy office, you're also doing other work with them. So I think that that's kind of the, the story here. And, and think too about, um, uh, in essence, what's happening here. We're talking about vibrations now. Um, and vibrations are the most effective and the most dense materials, which is why that bone, the, the mm -hmm. bone study is the most compelling here because vibrations definitely are are going to have greater effect on bones than on muscles. Yeah, um, still fascinating to me. And then the other side of it is where where many believe to be a more practical application is things like uh, trying to address scar tissue. So because scar tissue is a denser, denser. again, t tissue um, 
vibrations in the scar tissue may be able to help break it up a bit more, especially if you use it in conjunction with something else. Do a little bit of ultrasound and then do some scraping from some Graston. Mm -hmm. You might be able to break up the scar tissue more easily then. So again, none of that is proven, uh, but those are ways that you see physical Mm -hmm. therapists trying to use it with the assumption that rationally this should help, but it's not well proven. Yeah. And as the other ones were also the case, there's very little risk. If you are feeling burning, tell your <laughs> tell your uh, physical therapist or whomever is doing this strategy on you. So that's the one risk factor is you could get burned by it. Excessive ultrasound in a in a single location at high intensities can cause tissue damage. So. <laughs> But if but if you're not feeling that, it's yep. likely not going to be hurting you. So you'll know. I feel like the risk is pretty yep. low. As I mentioned, I've had ultrasound and it's been unpleasant at times, and that it was obvious when it was too much, when mm-hmm. it became too much. Last one is ESTIM. ESTIM, which I believe stands for electrical stimulation. Yes, you're right. <laughs> Zach. All right, good. You're right. I electrical stimulation ESTIM, therapy is applied to the body in the form of electrodes, which stimulate local muscle muscular contraction all right so check it out we're zapping you with lasers we're stabbing you with needles we're sound waving ultrasonically vibrating you and now we're electrocuting you literally (laughs) this and they call these things therapies Uh what next they're going to talk about soaking you in hot wax or something oh dear all right so what does this do for runners by contracting the muscles their stimulation of blood flow the dominant advantage however uh and the findings reveal this is the stimulation of motor neurons mm. Act- it's activation phase benefit then mm-hmm. therapy uh-huh. mm-hmm. so the research was interesting again it's it was varied because there's different applications for using this there was implications for motor relearning and strengthening and that was very measurable in one study. And that was with patients who had experienced motor loss, so like strokes, mm, yeah. or they had some sort of severe injury where they were like relearning how to do something, like relearning to walk, or they had a surgery that was requiring them to focus on some of that neuromuscular activation to be able to function properly. What about a scenario where you have a runner? who is not firing in the proper kinetic order, um, which is not the right kinetic, the kinetic chain is not firing in the proper order. Um, would something like this help potentially with, I think I don't know, so. I don't know how you I would do that. Of. Well, no, cause I like, I had a friend who wore it on her body when she was running because she wasn't activating some of her muscles right. and that helped her activate. Yeah, you can't really help but activate when you're getting zapped. Yeah, so, so it was constantly. like a retraining. It had similar, and a similar idea to that study. There was also a study on athletes to see if there was measurable muscle growth or not. Oh, and this was yes. interesting. It was I, yep, an app. It was called Six Pad Abs Fit Device, and so it was yep. electrodes on the abs and it was a treatment that was done so they had like a control group and then those that had these ab stimulators so pause here for a second now everyone listening make predictions okay so make predictions because the idea here is by forcing muscle contractions we could potentially passively strengthen a muscle okay that's the goal with these ab pads is that what they were called ab pads they're called six pad abs fit device six pad abs fit they got the words messed up it's because it was a brand so okay well anyway so 
Make a prediction. All right, now go ahead, Andy. All right. No, <laughs> the answer is no. There was no improvement. Did not help. <laughs> it didn't help. All those for silly muscle people growth. Shocking themselves However, to try to get a six pack. <laughs> when used with exercise, of course, it did work out. So, so what was the benefit? The exercise yeah. or the electricity? I think it was the activation that helped them then train better. That's mm, kind of what the implications are. It was a 12-week study with athletes. They were actually elite rugby players. Ooh. And there was a group using E-STEM, and there was a group that was not. And those that were using it had more strength and power when they were measuring those. Improvements, improvements. in strength yeah. and power. Yep. Okay. So it's – okay. Well, here, coaches everywhere listening – you need to electrocute your athletes Stop. to have He's better. He's kidding. He's kidding. To have better gains. In fact, that's what you watch uh, March Madness NCAA basketball. That's what those coaches are doing behind the scenes. <laughs> They've got all their basketball players attached to electrodes. And then when they're like practicing free throws, they're electrocuting them oh, while they're stop. shooting. Okay, he thinks he's being funny, guys. Um, <laughs> no, we are, we are advising only to do things that are safe to move towards improvement. And all of these things are best done with a practitioner or somebody who has studied and knows how to do it properly. It also is just way more effective because they know the places to put these needles and uh, to do these things. So make don't sure- Don't go around stabbing yourself with the no, kitchen knife or something. don't do that. Okay. That's not going to be oh, effective. Ugh. Okay. Um, so those are just some of the interesting <laughs> treatments that just you so. might be able to, to do to help you on the path toward recovery and healing if you've had an injury or you need a little bit of rewiring. So the moral of the story when we're talking about the recovery series here is there's a lot out there. There's a lot you can do. Um, and not all recovery approaches or therapies or treatments are equal, both in value or in accessibility. Um, and at the same time, certain things make a bigger difference on certain concerns, certain issues. And so this is where when it all comes back to is we need to have as runners, as athletes, we need to have in our tool kit um, a number of options. And we need to understand how those options can be best applied so that when I've got an issue on my run today, I know something I can do today that should be able to help me. Um, but I also need to have a savvy toward what kind of an issue is something that I need to go seek someone else's help with and do so sooner rather than later. Because as we find with any of these kinds of recovery treatments, many of them can be helpful and effective in speeding along the recovery process, but they are the most effective the earlier on they happen in the process. So everyone out there who's listening right now and you have been hobbling along on that hamstring injury Dan, or I mean somebody who might have a hamstring pain. Um, so if you've got that thing and it's been going on for a while, um, you're waiting too long to try to do something about it. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone who's got a, an issue right now hasn't been doing something about it. Uh, but the point is, if you've been ignoring the problem, hoping that it'll get better eventually, it's harder to get it to get better the longer you ignore it. Right. And well, and other things pop up. And I know this from personal yes. experience. So what starts in your hips then goes to your calf and your hamstring. And so obviously we're full humans and we uh, everything is connected. Let's do this, Andy. Let's do this. Two examples. Give me yours, your calf recently. Yeah. What, what, what happened? What did it feel like? And what did you do about it? Okay. 
So I was increasing my mileage. Do you know how it happened? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So I was increasing my mileage, but I was also working very long days in work issued heels. So they were a required heel. Wardrobe. <laughs> wardrobe. If you work in wardrobe <laughs> at a company, don't put your people hey, in hey. heels. They're not supposed to say stuff. Okay. Um, so yeah, those those heels, it was a difficult thing because I ran a 20 miler in heels and then went to work all day mm. where my calf was contracted. I did this for over a week where I was doing more mileage than I like. I mean, I did the normal growth in it, mm -hmm. but I was doing that in conjunction mm -hmm. with wearing these heels. And so after calves did look really nice. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I went to do a fart lick after a weekend where I had worked in the heels and did a 20 miler and it was all constricted like that. And I pushed off in an explosive motion. Granted, I had done a warm up. I had done all the things. You were, yeah, you were well warmed. You did all. Yep. And I strained my calf. Strained it. So what'd you do about that? I try to run again the next day. Or did you I call didn't. your coach and say, hey, coach, here's what happened. Uh, yeah. What should I do? That's that's what I did. So huh. I took time off. I actually ended up taking more time than maybe I needed, but I, I took over a week off. Yep. And that was my reset. And then I started back in. But what did gradually. you do during that week off? Just pretend like you weren't a runner anymore or did you? No, I, I had to do all the things, all of them. Yeah. So yeah. I did a lot of calf stretching and I did massage and I realized my hamstrings were tight. I did scraping. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I did some baths. And some Epsom salt baths. I did. Oh, and I did some yoga. That. So yeah. lots of things that I did. Okay. And so here's here's the summary of Andy's situation. Um, she felt the calf thing and she thought, you know what? This is not a good thing. Um, especially when you feel that like sudden like <clears throat> the pull. Um, that's bad. That's usually something you shouldn't try to run through. Uh, you certainly shouldn't try to run on it again the next day and hope that it's somehow going to feel better on the run than it did when you woke up in the morning. But the point is the immediate solution there is I got to start doing the stuff that helps with recovery. And Andy just mentioned it. So right away, she's like, okay, the calf by itself is not necessarily the single problem here. And this is almost always the case with runners. So she starts looking at, okay, my hamstrings happen to also be really tight. So I should do, if I'm doing my Graston, my scraping myofascial release, I should do that on any of those tight areas because they all interact with each other. And also when I'm taking that time off and I'm resting, what are the things I'm doing to ensure that the healing recovery is happening as well as I can facilitate it and that when I start running again, I'm not in the same situation I was before. So what am I doing to put myself in a better situation when I start running again? In that case, doing the stretches and mobilizing and things of that nature and trying to get out of the heels for a little bit. And rest yeah, those I did. I was able calves. to. So that was good. Yeah. So that's, that's a good example. Uh, that's a good case study in how to address then recovery scenarios and situations. I did go to my PT too. I should also mention that I went there the day after. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, he had an opening for me, so I was able to get stuff. in and uh, have some help there. So, yeah, there's yeah. this <clears throat> it, things will pop up, and in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, 20 miler, and then standing in heels, it's a bad idea. But how, there's the navigating that you have to do when it comes to life and sport. Yep. So here's mine, and mine's going to be a 10 second example. But uh, I had some hip discomfort it was kind of like tightness at first and then it, a day by day for about a week it was kind of worsening toward more like pain um 
and got to the point where I was like, clearly, as I'm running right now, I'm worsening it uh, because it's getting worse each day. Not so bad. It really just wasn't all that bad, but it was obvious that it was getting worse as I was progressing. So I immediately took a day off and then knowing the nature of this pain because it's not something new to me and having a pretty good idea of what's going on with my hip in that situation, I spent quite a bit of time that day trying to address the issue with the joint that was going on. Um, and then the next day, a very, very easy jog, and it was shorter than normal, um, just to kind of t- essentially to see if that was helping relieve it at all. And in fact, it helped immensely. So then I was like, okay, now I know I'm making progress here, and I know what is helping me to make that progress. So I immediately am going to focus on those types of things while easing back up the training to see if I can sustain training still and be able to get on top of it with the other stuff. And in fact, I was able to. However, I noticed after a few days that I started kind of forgetting about my extra work because it was feeling pretty good and it started to come back again, right? So I had to stay on top of those things more deliberately. Um, And in that situation, unlike Andy's, it wasn't really a, a single strain moment and it wasn't something that was clearly, uh, I couldn't do the running thing. And so I was able to address that issue in a very different way. Okay, well, those are those are the things. We talk about recovery because when it comes down to it, you're going to have something hurting at some point or another if you are a runner. What are the two stats, Andy? It's like 50% of runners are injured right now. Are injured right now and yep. or 25% of runners are no, injured. No, it's 50%, 50% of runners, runners are, are injured, injured right, right now. now and 25% of us are going to have some kind of substantial disruption in this year within the year, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's not good. But go back and listen to the myofascial release because those can help you prevent big issues from happening. A lot of it stems from not having really great muscle movement and having bound myofascia or tight muscles and not strengthening them in the proper way. So having mm-hmm. those things be on your radar now Preventative can help Preventative is better mm-hmm. than res- response or reactive. Absolutely. And the preventative stuff tends to be pretty easy to do. Mm-hmm. So- Do it. (laughs) Make no (laughs) excuses. Do it. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get on now to the world of running. Hey, we got some shout outs to A to Z runners. Laura, nice work on the half marathon, despite some difficulties with the legs still having. uh, She went so smart (laughs) and strong. It was still great. It was was a great great. race. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So glad, glad for the, the smart choices in those kinds of situations. Craig, yet another wonderful marathon. And this one, even uh, especially positive for um, the nature of how it felt when he was That's doing fantastic. it. So it was kind of like awesome. a testing. This one was a testing experience. So nice good work, job, Craig. Craig. That was really good stuff. More good stuff happening in NYC. There was the half marathon there. And it had a stacked field. Very exciting. And, in fact, I believe that the winners were first-time participants. Oh, interesting. Maybe. Well, Jacob Kiblimo well, was, but I don't know about the. I believe. I believe both there. of them were. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you just you gave away. Jacob Kiblimo <laughs> was the victor in this race. He put the hammer down, running faster with each 5K. And oh, here are the splits. This is brutal. 15-14, 14 14-22. Why do other people 
even try when he's oh, in the race? Oh, my word. Why do they even try? Jacob Kiplimo. Why don't they just go home as soon as they see him on the start line? Because runner-up was Joshua Cheptegei, and he does Countryman not do that. Countryman No, he doesn't. He does not fact, back down. He has beat Kiplimo a fair number exactly, of times. Although, so. granted, they're all on the track, pretty much none on the roads. But And someone else was hanging with them. Who's previous that? podcast guest, Zuhair Talvi. He was third. So that was an exciting trio to be following in this race. Again, I'll mention second place was Joshua Cheptegei, and he was in second with a time of 102.09. And this is only his second half marathon. Yeah, he doesn't do the roads much, yeah. or at least he hasn't. And he'll, he was very pleased with his more. finish, and he had to battle it out with Zuhair Talby for that second place position. Talby in third with a time of 102.18. Yeah. And the top American in the race was Ben True in Once fourth again. place <laughs> mm-hmm, with a time of 102.57. He is so consistent. He won this race actually back in 2018. And mm-hmm. as we mentioned, it was first time appearance for Jacob Kiplimo. And then on the women's side, should we tell them who won to start it off? I mean, you're kind of supposed to. That's the point of all right. Helen O'Beary won with a new course record, course even though it was terrible record. conditions, well, horrible I mean, conditions. But she is Helen O'Beary. She is Helen O'Beary. But she hates winter, which is funny because Dathan Ritzenhain <laughs> actually mentioned in a post race interview how much she hate, hates winter, and he was afraid because she hates it so much. Listen, but I, she's in really good shape. I don't said. begrudge any. Anyone who's from the Rift Valley who has to run in winter because, you know, it's just not fun. And it's not common around those parts of the world either. So, Mm -hmm. no, not cool. Yep. Freezing temperatures, below freezing temperatures and the headwind. Oof. O'Beary's time was 107.21 again to claim that course record. And that was over last year's winner, Senberry Teferi. And she was able to hold on to O'Beary for a while she was the only one actually it was just the pretty much the two of them but she was the previous course record holder i believe i didn't write that in here but i think i remember reading that mm-hmm. and this is a fun fact obiri is the only woman in history to win world titles in indoor track outdoor track and cross country yeah and now will she be a marathon winner someday i don't know she's she just, will yeah. She's getting started with this uh, road racing, and it's really exciting to see. Tafiri, who was the previous course record holder, I did write it, yeah. uh, matched her time that she had run last year oh. in a time of 107. Well, I mean, you can't. So you're running the fastest time that anyone's ever run on the course, minus the person who beats you in the race. Yeah, you're doing about as about as much as you can. Yeah. Prize purse was $20,000 in this event. Des Linden was the first American with a fifth place finish in a time of 112 21 all right she still runs races i well she's actually not, i was just i thought it was really notable <laughs> because she had done some other things for a while she did that ultra a couple years ago where she got she the american the record yeah. and she's been getting back into training but hasn't really had as many significant efforts and she just gave herself some time but obviously she's back i mean fifth place finish in this field is phenomenal previous guests dakota linworm and erica kemp were sixth and tenth places as well so wanted to mention and give them a shout out too cool stuff well speaking of terrible race experiences (laughs) so new york city was bad weather but the barkley marathons are just always bad Um, I, sh- I shouldn't say R. It's one event. So the Barkley Marathons is always bad. Um, so here's the deal. Barkley Marathons. If you're not familiar with this event, we're going to tell you about it here for a moment. Um, you should be. 
because it's just about the craziest one out there um, because of why. its weirdness. Okay, tell us more. <laughs> okay, so uh, here's the background. Barkley Marathons was founded in 1986 by, what's his name, Contrell, Cantrell, uh, Gary, I think. So Gary Cantrell founds this event in 1986. Apparently the reason he founded the event, which is just a, by itself a whole story, has something to do with the fact that the guy who assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. was held in a prison in Tennessee and escaped into the mountains in that area. Really? And Yes. And apparently made it about eight miles into the mountains before he was recaptured. Okay? He was caught. So I guess Kentrell is reading about this or hears about this and thinks to himself, I, could, I bet I could make it 100 miles in those mountains. Hmm. Right? So then he starts a race event to prove whether oh he can Lord. make it 100 miles he, in the mountains. He? I don't know if he's ever done it. He's well, the one I who directs the event. I don't think he actually has. But either way, um, here's the deal. Why so is it 19- called marathons then? Yes. Okay. So in 1986, it's, a, it's supposed to be 100 miles, uh, five loops. And he says they're 20-mile loops. Everyone who runs it says no. They are definitely longer than 20 miles. It's just kind of like a random, it's 20-ish miles. No, it's like a marathon or longer. Um, and so what you have to do, and this is where it all begins, right? This is the craziness of Gary Kentrell. Is it really? Is it Gary? Yeah. I wrote his name somewhere in here. It says Gary. <laughs> so Cantrell uh, does not have a race event post anywhere that you can like register or oh. learn about it. There's nowhere to find information on this, right? Except for from us here now or where we found it, which is Runner's World or Outside Magazine. <laughs> so um, you can find out about it all over the Internet. But the point is, is there's no race website. There's no official way to find out about this event or register for they it. They want no liability. Here's what you do. Yeah, right? <laughs> Here's what you do. You have to send a letter in the mail to Gary. And in that letter, you have to basically apply for, like, I want to run the event. Okay. Um, and he's got to decide whether or not he's going to let you in <laughs> as well. So it's kind of like you're putting like a resume <laughs> into this letter and you got to, you know, it's like a dollar 60, whatever to mail this thing. Um, so there's no fee. Okay. You don't, you don't pay a fee. You just apply and he'll let you know if you get in, but then in his acceptance letter, he's going to ask for something. And if you want to get in the race, you got to give him what he asks for. What? And it's like a pair of socks or a button-down shirt or like really? random like stuff. Like things he actually clothing. needs. Clothing. I'm guessing that he literally gets all of his clothing for the year from people entering oh this race. Oh my word! So that's hilarious. I know this is so funny. All right, so that's that's, that's how so you random. that's how you apply. But then, by the way, if you're a first timer, if you've never done the event before, and he's got a name for first timers, but if you're a first timer, then he also asks you to send a license plate from your home state or country. Cool. So he's got so he probably has a really somewhere cool he has a wall of I license bet he has a really plates. Cool basement. Oh, it, it, these wouldn't fit in just a basement. Over a thousand people have done this event. Oh my word! I, I don't know. I don't know where he keeps all of these, but he's got to have them posted somewhere. So, so anyway, cool. so this this is how you apply. All right, now you got in because you got the invitation and you gave him whatever article of clothing he asked for. <laughs> um, but here's the worst part. At that point. He'll let you know when the race will be because there's no set date okay. for this event. Part of it is he doesn't want spectators, all right? So he's, he's intentionally keeping it secret. And then he tells you, like, you can only bring, like, two people with you. And they can't be on the race course. For your crew? Yeah, oh. right. They can't be on the race course. But it's, it's a loop race. Spots. Remember, okay. it's a loop race. So they just all have this base camp. All right, so just a couple of people with you, no spectators. Um, and then when you get there for the race, there, you know where the location is because he'll tell you where it is. It's like this gate in the middle of this state park. Like there's just, there's just a yellow gate, you know, like those yellow gates across roads that are metal. 
It's that. That's okay. the that's the race location. <laughs> I don't know exactly where it is beyond that. Um, and then you get there, and and he will say, "We will start sometime between midnight and noon on this day, sometime." All right. And here's how you know when he's gonna blow a conch shell, and that means you have one hour before the start. And he'll do it whenever he feels like it. Oh, my word. Sounds so, right, like, no. secretive. All right, now and... get this. That's not even the end of it. So one hour after he blows the conch shell, everyone's getting ready to start the race, okay? And how do you know when you actually go? He'll light a cigarette. And that's <laughs> that's when it's time to start. This what? guy. This guy is so funny. That's so random. All right, so urban legends abound. Who knows how much of this I'm, is really I'm true? I'm thinking that maybe Chad, Aaron, you're talking, Lewis, You're talking RJ. to some people who need to do this? I bet, no, they, no, no. I bet they're wanting this. To but we're not done. We're not done, Andy. So here's how this works. You have 60 hours to complete five loops of the course, okay? Five loops. Okay. Um, and the loops are going to be basically a marathon. So that means you got – and, and there's a cutoff time, 12 hours for each one. So that's not too bad, right? 12 hours for a marathon. Um, our ultra people who are talking about, okay, 26 miles in 12 hours, yeah, definitely doable. But this is a mountain. We're talking about, 20, I mean, 18,000 feet of elevation or something with every loop. I don't know exactly what it is. But um, over the course uh, – no, it's 12,000 because <laughs> it's 60,000 feet. Anyway, um, you're talking about serious elevation. You're in a mountain. There are no trails. You're not doing this on trails. You're just basically bushwhacking the mountain. So you, you're not talking about like running – more than like foliage hiking okay so there's that but here's the challenge at the start of each loop he will hold out a map one copy of a map you have to as quickly as possible copy that map down like on a piece of paper or something there are no phones allowed no gps is allowed oh no that map is going to show you where to go in these random woods in this mountain and somewhere on the course is a book and you have to find it and rip out the page that corresponds with your bib number. And if you don't come back with that page, it doesn't matter that you did the whole thing. You are out. Really? So you have to rip the page out of the book, right? And uh, wherever that these would books be my are undoing. on this loop. Okay, so you rip out the pages. I don't know. There's I don't know how many there are, but you got to do. You got to find the books based off this map, which you're probably scrolling on pieces of paper or the back of your hand or something. And then you do the loop. You get done. You bring back your pages. If you get done within 12 hours, you're good. You can just hang out. And at the end of those 12 hours, you start again with a new map with new books to find. <laughs> yeah. And you got to rip out those pages and they give you a new bib. All right. So you got to find, you know, more pages with a new bib because it's a new page number. Okay. So this is how this works. Every time you come back with your pages, that's how they know that you completed the loop because – you know, that's your proof. Otherwise, how would anyone know where you were that whole time? You could have just gone and taken a nap under a rock. Well, so you got your pages. That's proof that you completed the loop. You get done within 12 hours. You can rest until that 12 hours is up, and then you have to start again. And if you miss the cutoff, you're out. So now here's how crazy this is. About 1,000 people have done the event. Anyone want to take a guess? Some of you might even know how many people total, including this year, have actually completed all five loops. Over 1,000 people. 21 total have ever completed this no woman has ever made it to loop five only 21 men have ever completed the event period so now we're talking about you've got at best a two percent chance of finishing the event if you start this thing and if you're a woman it's it's practically speaking a zero percent chance because no one ever has in this year however three men 
finished it in one year, which that's like happened one other time, I think. That's crazy. So, and these three guys, these are serious dudes. So Aurelian Sanchez, uh, who I believe is French, won the event in, in a pretty pretty impressive time, 58 hours and change or 57 hours and change. And then John Kelly was second. And this is his second time completing it, which is, I mean, to have a repeat completion, that's good stuff. Um, by the way, John Kelly is the last person who completed it back in 2017. Wow, it's been a while. So we're talking about six years. Well, they had to skip a year from COVID. So five events, four events that no one had completed it. Wow. <laughs> so that matters. Um, and then Carl Sabi as well. I believe he's Belgian, uh, completed it. And Damien Hall started the fifth loop. Uh, so there are actually four guys still going in the fifth loop, which is by itself super impressive. But Damien Hall did not finish and he never found the book yeah so close yeah so almost got there jasmine paris for the women uh was the only the second woman ever to start the fourth loop so she i mean that by itself that is a feat she made it to be the beginning of the fourth loop set a new women's record as well in the process um and and just you know inching closer she wasn't that far off inching closer to that fifth loop um and i should mention they're serious about the cutoff so like they said People have missed it by like two or three seconds, and that's it. If you don't touch the yellow gate by the time that Gary Cantrell has on his watch, he will not let you start the next one. Like two seconds even. No good. So brutal. Yeah, brutal. That is brutal. All right. Well, there you have it. 21 have ever completed it, so you got a 2% chance. And that's now we're talking about from since 1986. This is just... That's the weirdest event. Weirdest event on the planet. Oh, I should mention... He started the event in 1986. The first time anyone actually ever completed it was 1995. It took nine <laughs> years before someone even finished it. Wow. The fact that he kept Why did they the even event? keep doing like, it? It was like, no, this is terrible, man. Because it's unique and quirky. Oh, People like unique and quirky. I don't know. <laughs> it certainly is that. Well, for our last note for the World of Running segment here, we wanted to talk about an interesting article. This one also from Outside Magazine. Do we really want to share this one? I do because it's fascinating (laughs) and it is encouraging and inspiring. So runners, y'all runners listening to us right now, um, there's one thing among certainly several possible things, but there's one thing for sure that is true for every single one of us. We are all getting older. Shoot. Every day. Just kidding. <laughs> Every single day. I look day. forward to many things about getting <laughs> older, but some, like, I don't okay. as much. Well, one thing that runners tend to not look forward to is the um, the actual performance loss that happens in aging. Well, there are, have been many studies around this, and not to get too far into it, if you want to read the Outside Magazine article, they actually cite a couple of these studies that are really in-depth, and it's worth reading because it's just interesting to know the numbers. But uh, here's how it goes. Basically... For almost everyone, and of course there's tons of variation by individual, but the average is at about the age of 25, our performance capacity begins to decline to the tune of about 10% VO2 max loss every 10 years. 10% every 10 years. So the easy numbers to remember, 10% every decade. Um, 25? Yeah, after the age of 25. Now, this is not true of every single person. And I'm going to talk about why in a moment, but um, there are certain things behaviorally that change it. And there are many things genetically that change it. So I'm not going to go too far into the weeds here. Just understand that the average in a general human population is 10% every 10 years. Now that's human population. Apply runners to the mix. And that's closer to like 5% for like active 
runners who are training consistently, um, you might see five or a little more percent decline every 10 years. So that's that's encouraging, right? It means the activity that you're doing is helping uh, offset the age loss variable, which is good. Uh, but there's a lot more involved here. And one thing I wanna plug here is that because many of the studies only look at certain metrics to try to keep it consistent, um, something else that makes a difference here is we know that uh, VO2 max, as is influenced by aerobic capacity, is the most common measurement they use to show this, but they're not measuring for factors like musculoskeletal strength or neuromuscular efficiency. And so we already know that spending time doing those types of things is as well going to reduce the age loss decline of performance. So it could be even less than like, in terms of like total performance loss, it could be less than 5% for every decade. So that's, that's, that's encouraging. Like we're talking about, you can really minimize that loss by the nature of the things you're doing. However, here's what I wanted to get into is they started to look at, okay, what does, what changes depending on people's uh, behaviors? And we're talking about training and such. Um, and how does that, uh, how does that play in terms of to the numbers? One example, and I don't remember exactly, you have to read the article. I didn't write it down. Whoever did this uh, study produced essentially a kind of a really practical uh, approach, which essentially said they have found that increasing an hour of training per year or per week, rather per year. So an hour of training more each week, each year um, is going to offset that essentially one ish percent loss in VO2 max. So the idea here is if you're 25 years old and you just start running, right? Um, every year add an hour of training to your total weekly volume, and you're essentially going to have a net zero performance loss until you get to the point where you can't continue to increase. Right. I right? was about to say that's there's like a practical a limit. Time. Yeah, there's a practical <laughs> limit. A Think about it. In 10 years' time, you're adding an hour to each week. You're talking about adding 10 hours to the week. But yeah, the, you can't that's do that. a lot, right? Now, yeah, if you're, you should if you're, do more than 10 hours. Well, yeah, but if you're starting from zero, this is the point, right? If you're starting from zero, so you can offset a, de a decade's decline by a by 10 hours worth of increase in training, which is too much for most people, but it it helps some. So you're increasing some if your capacity is able to handle an increase. That's interesting. Now, that, of course, is not practical for most of us. That was, that was my point there. That was an example of one thing that showed um, a way to combat the loss kind of net zero, but that's not practical for most of us. Um, I should say that came from, uh, that was inspired by, what's that, the legend of Milo, uh, Milo of Croton, who was like the ancient Olympian, the Greek, uh, I think, no, he's not Greek, he's from Croton. Uh, but anyway, the, the ancient Olympian who claimed, he was, he was a wrestler, claimed that uh, if you lift a calf, a baby cow, over your head every day, as it grows bigger, eventually you'll be lifting a cow over your head, right? Like a full-grown cow, <laughs> theoretically. Yeah, and of course, there's a practical limit. You get to a point where the cow is too heavy for a human to lift, right? <laughs> That's the idea here. So you get to a point where you're running too much. And that's not helpful anymore. So, yes, we know there's a practical limit. However, here's the key. And this is where the study really got into the weeds that was so interesting, which is um, the things that make the biggest difference all boil down to one above anything else. And that is the consistent application of high volumes of low intensity cardiovascular work. And it's not just running. It's just cardiovascular stimulus, high volumes of low intensity cardiovascular stimulus implemented consistently over time are the thing things that are minimizing 
the age loss factor. I like the, the sound of that. I love yeah. long, slow, long, long runs. slow. It's good. It tell it's telling. Now here's what we have to apply to that. Um, from our perspective, it's always going to be back to there's there's more than one thing you can do to help yourself. So do all of the things, and you're gonna help yourself even more. That means like things like strength and mobility work to increase movement efficiency, neuromuscular types of training capacities to increase running economy. All of that stuff further diminishes the loss that we're discussing here to the point where now this is where they start to talk about they see so many examples of runners who um you know maybe end up having to take some time off for a while for like a major injury or just in in life in general and they come back five six seven years later and theoretically they shouldn't be able to be as fit right because that's a lot of time off but also you're you know six or seven years older and yet they come back and they're better than ever performance value talking about i'm talking about a lot of people in fact they started citing examples and they just there were tons of them so the point here is there's a lot we can do and this concern we have of the age loss factor is a legitimate concern in the sense that it does happen and it is always happening um but it is not as substantial as often feared if we're doing certain kinds of things that offset it most effectively Mm. there you go that was encouraging you're right yeah see i like it yeah well speaking of encouragement you don't have to listen to us anymore because we're (laughs) wrapping it up (laughs) until next week (laughs) until next week when you can be discouraged thoroughly by the sound of our voice in your ears once again okay but we do love having conversations with you and again plugging it for that question the q a which is our favorite episode please send us your questions we love to hear from you and if you haven't already please subscribe to the show tell a friend yeah all of that but don't miss us on march 22 at 8 p.m eastern daylight time we are live on facebook mm-hmm. i won't i don't know if i'll be there for that but well i will <laughs> yeah i might be uh, checking in with you virtually as well so okay very good all right well thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk to you next week Thank you.